everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. So a family is watching two TV shows right now. They're both uh, in the off-season, and one of them is on uh, Apple TV+, Plus. so there's no standards and practices, like there's no network television involved, which means that they're very free with their profanity. And as parents, you know, it's that ongoing struggle of how much do you let your kids hear and how much do you not, and all of that thing. The other one is reruns on Roku, but it was a network show, and uh, if you dig into it, I don't know if you've ever actually researched network television standards and practices, it's quite absurd. Like, if you open your Bible and you, re- you, you read the law of Leviticus and the very particular things, that's kind of where they got their inspiration. There's a certain amount of types of swear words you can use per season. Uh, I'm, I happen to be a big fan of Vince Gilligan, who has written Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, and he goes into a lot of detail about when to place the carefully placed profanity per episode so they don't get a fine. Anyway, it's really, the sermon's got very little to do with that, but here I am. And uh, so we're watching this other show, and because it was a network show that's now on Roku, what they do is you, you don't have to be much of a lip reader to know what they're saying, but they just silence it out. So you see a very obviously placed swear word that's now just silent audio, and what happens then is you just commit the word in your heart, as Jesus said. That's, that's, you just fill in the gaps in your mind, right? So I just want to have a quick word about profanity, Uh, Because when we think of profanity, that's what we think of. We think of language, a list of vocabulary that is inbounds and out of bounds. And I I don't know how you were raised, but almost all of us were raised in a household that had either spoken or unspoken expectations about profanity. What words could you use? What words could you never use? And then what gets really interesting is sometimes the parents had a broader set of permissions than the kids right? So some of you, particularly maybe in the older generation, maybe you said a word and then a bar of soap came out, right? I'm going to wash your mouth out, that kind of thing. Where others of you, like I was raised in a home, well, I would just call it a very moderate range of profanity options available to all of us. Uh, And in fact, then I became a follower of Christ. It became quite problematic. I remember I had not been a follower of Christ very long, and I went to Bible college from, you know, secular Western Australia to Bible Belt, Knoxville, Tennessee, not realizing that there's a different set of allowable words from the cuss unchurched house to then the West Australian church to the very conservative fundamentalist Bible college. And I remember sitting in a cafeteria in my first week of school, I was still getting over my jet lag, and I dropped the H word, which in the cuss house isn't even profanity. Like that's just readily available adjective, and silence the entire cafeteria, like a Bible college student dropping the... And I was like, wow, that's, that's a lot of power when you drop profanity. W- what about for you? What, what were the words that were allowed? What were the words that were not allowed? Uh, what's, what's interesting to me about this whole idea of profanity is it, it, we have somehow reduced it down to swearing. Like when you think of profanity, your first thought is probably certain vocabulary words that are acceptable or unacceptable. But when you open the Bible and you look at what profanity is, it's something much broader than just your preferred vocabulary when you hit your thumb with a hammer. Being profane has more to do with being polluted, Uh, polluting your soul, polluting your body, uh, polluting by your behavior. 
And what we're going to take a look at today, just for 25, 30 minutes or so, is we want to contrast God's holiness and our profanity. I, I think it's going to be a good time. I know this sounds like a somewhat heavy topic. I think we're going to have fun with profanity. We'll see. And so the couple of questions I just want you to consider as we get into this message. Okay, first of all, what is profanity? If it's more than just uh, verbs and adverbs and adjectives, then what is it? And then, of course, the same, what is God's holiness? Uh, I'll just set out a proposal for us that profanity is pollution, therefore holiness is purity. God is pure. When, when, when the Scripture says that God is holy, that means God is pure. And what we do is sometimes we pollute God's purity, but, but you've got to ask yourself the question, pure of what? Like, what's he pure with, right? Like, if, if we tend to pollute God's purity, what is the pure essence of who God is? All right, so obviously we took quite a quick journey in about a minute there from TV shows and language into the purity of God. Uh, those in the room, are you still with me? No one put their hand up, so I'm going to, I put my hand up as a physical cue. Okay, that's fine. So, all right, so if we keep ticking around the purity of God, the issue that the religious leaders had with Jesus is that Jesus seemed to be polluting God's purity. In fact, you could make a case that one of the reasons that the religious leaders wanted Jesus crucified is he was profane in, in their view of God's purity. Jesus was profane. He was practicing profanity because they had a very particular idea of what made God pure and Jesus was not it. And so they were often hurling accusations at Jesus. So Luke chapter 15 is going to be our text today. And uh, here is the opening. We'll just talk a bit and then we'll set it up and see what we can hear. Uh, Luke records for us, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, I love the word muttered. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. In other words, there's no way that Jesus can actually be God because if Jesus was God, he certainly would not be keeping the company he keeps. He is living a profane life. He is polluting the pure character of God's holiness by the company he keeps. What I love about this story is the leaders, the religious leaders, they muttered this. They were too passive aggressive to stand in front of Jesus and stick their fingers in his nose and make a bold-faced accusation. But Jesus being God, he, he knew exactly what they were up to. And I find his response fascinating. Rather than make a case or argue with them, he just starts telling three stories. Three stories. One of the stories, we'll read it today. I would say it's the second most famous story Jesus ever told. The, the most famous story would be the Good Samaritan, in my opinion. That's probably Jesus' most famous story. So famous that hospitals are named after it. The, the second closest hospital this place right here, Good Samaritan Hospital. The most famous story, the second most famous story, I would say is Prodigal Son. That's the story we're going to cover today. Fascinating to me that you've got to ask yourself, why did Jesus tell the Prodigal Son's story he told the prodigal son's story because he was accused of being profane. And he wanted to show people who were profoundly concerned with God's holiness, he wanted to show them exactly what God's holiness looks like. 
he, he wanted to show religious leaders and actually everybody around him, these so-called sinners and tax collectors, he wanted to show them what God's pure essence is and how you can profane it. So he told three stories. We'll just rip through the first two quickly. I feel bad for these stories. They don't get nearly the publicity that the prodigal does. He tells them all at once, so I'll read them all at once. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, already, I'm, I'm just going to declare this is an absurd story. My uncle's a sheep farmer, and he never called us when he found a sheep. We never got a phone call. In fact, what was more accurate is he was kind of relieved that there was one less stupid sheep to take care of. But Jesus is upending our assumptions here. So then Luke uh, 15, 8, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. And the friends and neighbors are like, Look, Apple has these tags now and you can also buy a tile. Like, why are we coming over having a party because you found a stupid coin? Like, it's absurd, right? In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of, of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus is two stories in and the Pharisees are like, these are the dumbest stories I've ever heard in my life. Like sometimes what will happen is those of us who preach is we try to make more of these stories than they are. We try to dig into the 99 and the one. And, but really, Jesus is exaggerating and kind of mocking the Pharisees with these stories about things that actually don't quite honestly matter that much. And then the idea that when you find like a nickel, you demand that your, your family comes over and has a party with you. And they're like, well, we like having a party, but because of a coin? And Jesus is starting to rub on them about exactly the pure nature of God's holiness. And then he really hits a home run with this story where he says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And of course, already in this story, we won't get into it too much. You can Google this on your own. It's fascinating. If you want to just do a little of your own Googling on the prodigal son and the Jewish assumptions about what it means to be a good son versus an absolutely offensive son and what it means to associate with pigs. You can get quite a long way on your own, but there's no question that already the Pharisees hate this young son because to go to your dad while he's still alive and say, give me my inheritance now, is basically saying to your own dad, I wish you were dead. I would prefer you be dead so I can have what's yours. I prefer that over your company. That's really what the youngest is saying. And the dad just says, okay, if that's what you want, I, I'll give it to you. 
Luke 7, uh, 15, 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death? I'll set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. There's all kinds of argument over whether this speech is heartfelt or spin. And no one knows. Where Jesus tells this story, he intentionally does not give us insight into the intent of the youngest. Was he really heartbroken or was he manipulative? Was he just saying, I'll concoct uh, a, a speech that'll make my dad feel sorry for me? We don't know. It turns out his intent doesn't matter to the father. That's part of the reason Jesus did not put intent in the youngest because it's irrelevant. So he got up and went to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him and the son said to him, Father, I've, let me give you my prepared rehearsed speech. I think you can see my point of view on this matter. Let me give you my prepared, manufactured, well-rehearsed speech with the talking points that'll really provoke in you maybe some mercy. But the father interrupted the speech, didn't even let the son, if you go back and look at that, he didn't get the whole speech out. He was like, hey, I had it memorized, I had my talking points. The father's like, none of that matters, you're here. Quick, he says to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Just a couple of things. One of my great heroes of the faith, uh, Dr. Fred Craddock, one of the world's experts in the book of Luke. He says to pay attention to verse 24, where the father says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Uh, Dr. Craddock says that in the ancient storytelling of the Jewish culture, it's called the end stress emphasis. The last thing is the most important. In other words, there's something worse than being dead and that's being lost. And there's something better than being just alive and that's being found. It was an intentional word order that Jesus puts in the mouth of the Father. Celebrating any time that somebody is lost and now they're found and so they began to celebrate. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? Oh, your brother's come home, he replied, and your father's killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. This is the first hint that the older brother is not actually very much about his father's business. He doesn't even know what's going on in his father's business. He has to ask a servant. That's how out of touch he is with the holiness of the father. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, also known as this brother of mine, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? Let me translate. 
this son of yours has been gone for five years and I've worked on average 80 hours a week in the field at minimum wage times five years, time and a half above 40 hours a week, dad, you owe me $170,000. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours, but we had to be we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, many of us who have been around the church, maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you've been around the church for several years, you know this story. It's, it's, it's one of, it, it's, if it's not the most famous Jesus uh, story, it's at least his most beloved story, the prodigal son story. What I'm interested in doing today is asking, what's the story about? What provoked Jesus to tell the story? And I'd like to make the case today in just about 10 minutes, so we're actually going to move pretty quickly, that what the story is fundamentally about is profanity and holiness. Is what does it mean that God is holy? What is God's pure essence? If God is holy, that means God is pure, that his essence is unpollutable, and that if human beings tend to profane the holiness of God, what is that and how can we get back in touch with the essence. I'd make the case that what happened was Jesus is just doing his ministry. Jesus is God in the flesh and he's showing us, for many of us, for the first time in our life, what God is really like and God is so much different than what we thought God was like. So much so that the, the professional God followers, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, they're, they're convinced that Jesus is not holy, he's profane. So let's just look at some ways that we profane God. I think profanity in the youngest is pretty easy to see, so we'll move through it quickly. Profanity in the youngest, you come to the end of yourself and then you decide that God is harsh and unliving, unloving. You know, youngest type profanity, this youngest who took everything he had and squandered it, you simply get involved in things that aren't good for your soul. You offer anything you want to your body. You stay out late and drink in such a way that you don't remember what you did the night before. You basically live a wild existence and then you're simply counting on God forgiving you. Some of us in this room have profaned the holiness of God the way the youngest did, where you just live indulging. You decide that you can do whatever you want with your life and there's going to be no consequences. And then again and again and again, you find yourself uh, reaping your own consequences. I, I simply want to say this is something that we have uh, talked about again and again in 2021. That for those of you who find yourselves trapped in a secret habit, at some point you have to put your hand up and cry for help because the habit and the secrecy of destroying your soul. I, I don't know what the habit is, whether it's like an addiction like alcohol or drugs or uh, quite commonly in our culture an addiction like pornography. But what tends to happen when you're in a secret habit like that is you indulge and then it has you and it takes you down a path and then at some point you wake up with some kind of regret but you can't handle the shame and so you simply cover it over and pretend nothing happened and that cycle repeats again and again and again and you've become numb to the effect it has on your soul and you've become numb to the effect it has on people who profoundly love you. And this is a church where youngest sins are welcome. 
so that when you put your hand up in this church, whether that looks like coming down front after the service, calling the church during the week, talking to somebody in your life, when you put your hand up in this church, nobody in this church ever says, I told you so. That's the one phrase you will never hear from a person in this church, even if you've done it again and again and again. So that's profanity in the youngest. But there's also profanity in the oldest son, hiding in his self-righteousness. It's more subtle. It's interesting, isn't it, that this story is known as the prodigal son. Uh, Jesus didn't name this story. He just told the story. Just actually, while we're going on Bible propaganda, Jesus didn't name the good Samaritan. He just talked about a certain man from Samaria. But later on, as the Bible was put together, the Bible editors saw the radical behavior of the Samaritan that Jesus would just describe as standard baseline behavior for any follower of Christ. But it was so radical that they called him the Good Samaritan. In the same way as the Bible editors were putting this story together, I believe, if I may, that they've misnamed this story. It shouldn't be called the prodigal son. It should be a, um, a plural. The prodigal sons. For too long, the church has taught that there's one way to run away from God. That's the youngest way. But it turns out, according to Jesus, there's two very effective ways to hide from God. Number one, go far away from the way of God as you possibly can. Get to the absolute end of your rope. And once you pass the end of your rope, that's when you discover that God's ready to take you back. And then you are forgiven and you live with some regret. And as I've talked to many of you who have lived youngest kind of lives... Uh, you find yourself spending five or ten years trying to repair damage in relationships and things like that. God's forgiven you, but you still have a human impact. But it turns out there's another way to hide from God, and it's the way that most of us relate to the IRS. Pay just enough to keep him off your back. Just do just enough, minimum required standard, so you're not audited. That's, how, that's my relationship with the IRS. I can't speak for you. I'm looking for all the legal loopholes and all of the legal ways that I can pay the minimum required tax so that the IRS doesn't call and get involved in my life. I remember a few years ago, we were doing a capital campaign. Lisa and I gave so much percentage of our income, we got audited. I was, I, we were very proud of it, I'll be honest. We are like, this is amazing. We got audited because we're too generous. The IRS is basically like, we don't think you were that generous. And they required us to uh, show check stubs. Like, and we're not very organized. We're both youngest in our birth order. So we never really pay our bills, but we have a lot of fun. That's kind of our family. Bill pay saved our marriage. I'm not kidding. Like, like the automated bill pay. Thank you, Jesus, for bill pay. It's amazing. It just goes out every month. I have to think about it. And so we had to go through our records and reach the bank and get these physical checks because, oh man, that was a pain in the rear. And there are many people who have been so-called followers of God so long that God's not in the picture anymore. Just the behavior is in the picture. The, the right living is in the picture. And you're hiding in your self-righteousness. It's much more subtle than the youngest, but it's every bit as insidious to the soul. Great looking exterior, inside full of pride and conceit. You might even win some kind of citizenship award, but in the end you become a person that no one can really live with. And you fall into the danger of believing your own spin. 
It's interesting, isn't it, that when we think of the prodigal son, we really only think of the youngest, but Jesus told the story for uh, an order of scandal, and the biggest scandal, as it turns out, was the oldest in the field. Because the father had to go chase both of them down. If you go back and look at the story, the father is first out on the road with his binoculars looking for the youngest. He's already out on the hunt so that the youngest doesn't even have to come all the way home and knock on the front door. In this story, the father is meeting him as the son is coming back home and then brings him back in and treats him like a son even though the youngest thinks he's going to be treated like a servant. The ring, the robe, the sandals, the fatted calf, all of it. And then they're in there partying and the oldest is out in the field and he's so out of touch with his father even though he clocked in sunrise to sunset, whatever it takes, I'm getting the crop in. It's going to rain in two days and if I don't work 14 hours today, it's going to spoil the crop, Dad. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it again and again and again, reliable, faithful, never doing anything wrong. Whatever you need, I'm there. You don't even have to ask me for it. And now I find myself all alone. My father's nowhere to be found. I have uh, obeyed and been faithful all the way out of your presence. And then the father's like, where's my son? And has to take another journey leave the party, which he happily does. And look at that oldest. If you go back and look at that language, you see the oldest arguing with dad. At least the youngest wasn't dumb enough to do that. Don't speak back to your dad. How many of you were raised in a family where your dad was allowed to be angry, but you were not to speak back to him at all or trouble would strike? The youngest knew that. He just, he just let the dad put the robe on him. He's like, wow, this turned out way better than I thought it would. The oldest stands his ground and says, you don't know what it's like to be me. It's incredible. The oldest wasn't obedient at all. If the oldest was obedient, he would have been out on the road with his father. They had enough money. They could have hired out the hay, the second cutting that you do in August of the hay. They could have hired that out. He could have been out with his dad looking, 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 not for his father's son, but for his brother. You know, some of us, we become followers of Christ. We fall in love with God. The idea, I remember in my life, I, I wasn't raised in the church. Uh, th this whole idea of being found, being better than being alive, I, I guess in a sentence, that's my testimony. I was alive, but I was lost. And uh, I, I know for many people, when the Bible talks about being lost, um, that to you sounds like a pejorative thing, like there's something wrong with you. I've always just taken it as an accurate description of my life. I was lost. I was a teenager and I knew I was lost. And then I discovered the unbelievable joy of being found. What happens over time is, is, is you, you follow God and then you're like, well, how do I follow this invisible God? And people say, well, get up every morning and read your Bible a chapter a day or read a book of chapter of Proverbs a day, Old Testament, New Testament. Then they teach you how to pray. And when you're, when you're uh, not being careful, then you sign up and you volunteer for the church and you roll up your sleeves and maybe you even open your checkbook and you start to give generously. And then somewhere along the journey, God is gone and these habits remain. And listen, it was well-intentioned. But, but if your spiritual disciplines don't lead you to the presence of the Father, they're not spiritual disciplines. They're just legalism. They're just self-salvation projects. I've done this in my own life time and time again 
where I'm reading my Bible, but it's not anymore to connect with my loving Father. It's just because that's what you do. And then I put my Bible away and I feel guilty because real Christians read their Bible every day. Uh, Martin Luther says, I'm particularly busy today, so I'm going to pray more. And I'm like, up yours, Martin Luther. I forgot to pray today. No wonder the Reformation, man. This week I was reading this phenomenal Dominican Catholic priest. I've been diving into my Catholic theology lately, and it's been so wonderfully provocative for me. Herbert McCabe, his name is. He died in 2001. He made this incredible statement. He said, here's the thing about sin. He said, we think that when we sin, God changes God's view of us. So we sin and God gets angry or disappointed and then we repent and then everything's fine. Here's what McCabe says. He says, sin is not that God's view changes of us. What sin does is it pollutes us. It's how we live profane when we live in sin. Whether it's the sin of the youngest or the sin of the oldest, we are polluted by sin. And what does sin pollute? McCabe says, sin pollutes our view of God's view of us. Sin shifts, not the way God sees us. Sin, sin shifts the way we think God sees us. Go back through the prodigal son story this week. I'm going to invite you to do this on your own time. And look at how the youngest's view of his father shifted when he was in sin. Uh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm now a slave. But when he met the father, no shift in the father's point of view. You are my son, my beloved son, and I'm going to treat you exactly like I treat a son. Look at how sin shifted the oldest's view of his father. And then look at the father trying to convince the oldest, I've not changed. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am unchanging. I am immutable. McCabe goes on to say that what actually happens is we start acting like God is Satan when we sin. The accuser, the harsh judge, the angry one. And so McCabe says the goal is to not live in sin, not because so much of right and wrong. I mean, that's important, but it's not the foundational reason to live a holy life. The foundational reason to live a holy life, to be free of sin, to not let sin reign in your body, in the wonderful words of Paul, the reason to do that is so it improves our chances of seeing God for who God really is, which is holy, pure. Just... One little aside, I'll just say how to move on. You know, we've picked on the sins of the youngest. We've picked on the sins of the oldest. Those, are more, those of us who have been religious for a while, uh, I, I like the way John Ortberg says it. He says, it's very difficult when you're in the church to stay the youngest. We all kind of migrate over to the oldest over time. Some of you who are watching this, maybe you're watching online and you're not a follower of Christ and you're like, well, that's good for me. I get off scot-free. Not so fast. Profanity among the unchurched. What you do, the way you profane the holiness of God is you move a personal and intimate God to become an abstract, unknowable concept and you remain non-committal. You are living, according to Scripture, in sin. Your sin has polluted your capacity to see God for who God really is. 
Okay, so then what is the holiness of God? There's a stream of churches, even today, there's a whole rich tradition that really likes to talk about the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. Uh, In case you're wondering, we are a church where we believe God is 100% sovereign. Uh, Sometimes people in our kinds of churches, we're very flippant with our language and we say things like, I'm putting God on the throne of my life. God's not on the throne of my life, to which I want to say to you, you're not nearly as powerful as you think that you can flick the king around off and on the throne of your life like it's up to you at all. No, God is sovereign. God is king. God is king. He's king of my life. He's king of this church. He is king of the universe. That's the sovereignty of God. And God is holy. The mistake we make is that when we hear holy, we think fear, afraid. We think perfect, unpolluted. But what Jesus came to show us is that God's holiness, his pure essence, is his faithful, loving kindness that pursues and invites us all. That's the holiness of God. God's sovereignty is, at essence, his love, not his anger. His love, not his judgment. God's holiness and sovereignty is the love of God, and he invites all of us to enjoy it. Mariah and Irma and the team have prepared a song where they're just going to sing over us the love of God as a way that we can receive as we prepare our hearts for worship. So I'm going to invite them to come out now. And I just want to make a couple of statements as they get prepared here. Uh, First of all, in the New Testament, the opposite of love is not hate, it's fear. That's the opposite of love, it's fear. I have to go and get them, don't I? Excuse me. Yeah, it's time. It was not a a clear cue, apparently. Yeah, it's all right. So in the New Testament, the (laughs) man, that's a first. In the New Testament, the opposite of love is not hate, it's fear. This is why the number one command in the Bible, the number one command is fear not. Is fear not. Because you cannot fear God and see God for who he really is. But if you see God as loving, You'll run to him like crazy. God is the shepherd who abandons his flock to rescue the one lost lamb. God's the woman who turns her house upside down to find the lost coin. God's the crucified who cries out from the tree, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. We're going to hear a song that just really pours over us the love of God. And just as we close, Old Testament, Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing.